You are tuned to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Tuesday, February 15th, 2022. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Coming up after the BBC headlines, California's chief health officer says guidelines for changes in school mask requirements are on the way. One Roseville district has done away with mask mandates altogether. Meanwhile, Governor Gavin Newsom's poll numbers are mixed and dropping when it comes to crime and homelessness. California News Service offers hope to parents struggling with kids and screens, and Paul Emery gets some straight talk on jobs data from economist Gary Zimmerman. This is the California Report. I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. Those of us who are vaccinated can remove our masks in most indoor settings starting tomorrow. But school kids inside classrooms still have to keep their masks on, at least for now. KQED's Julia McAvoy reports. In two weeks, California's head of health and human services, Mark Galley, says the state will lay out a timeline for when schools can move to lift their mask mandates, if they so choose. Masking requirements were never put in place to be there forever. Uh, It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. He says while Omicron cases and hospitalizations are dropping fast, we have a long way to go to get all kids vaccinated. Just 25 percent of those who are eligible have gotten their shots. Therefore, masks remain a really important tool in keeping kids from getting the virus. But in Simi Valley Unified in Ventura County, District Superintendent Jason Paplinski thinks the time for separate school masking criteria has passed. You know, myself and my colleagues, parents in our community, And our students are looking for an answer to when this ends. Like, when do we step out of this phase? We can't stay in it forever. And frankly, we can't stay in it for much longer because reasonable people are losing their patience. Peplinski says vaccines are available to students and teachers everywhere now. The decision to wait on lifting the mask mandate for schools involved many stakeholders, including labor unions, said Galley. Jeff Friedis is head of the California Federation of Teachers. He says a timeline makes sense. The bigger discussion is the, the timing of this because it needs to not only be based on science, but also something that can be implemented at schools. If something were announced today and to say this changes tomorrow, that disrupts an education system. Freda says unlike going to a restaurant, attending school is mandatory, and schools have a higher level of responsibility to keep everyone safe, including in communities that have the highest case rates and the lowest vaccination rates. Other states have already moved to lift mask mandates in schools, including Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Oregon, and New Jersey. For the California Report, I'm Julia McAvoy. Meanwhile, a school district in Roseville is taking a different approach. Starting today, some students there will no longer be required to wear masks at school. The Roseville Joint Union High School District Board of Trustees voted in a meeting last week to make face coverings optional in defiance of the state's mandate. One of the parents who spoke at the meeting was Michelle Peterson. I'm just asking that you give our kids the choice, especially when The people that are supposed to be governing us, our governor, our mayors, are flaunting it and slapping them in the face. That you can go into Target on Tuesday, but you may not sit in the classroom to be educated for our future. 
The district says it will continue to provide N95 masks to students and teachers who want them, and has no plans to start mandatory testing for asymptomatic students. California voters are increasingly unhappy with the job Governor Gavin Newsom is doing to address the major issues facing California. That's according to a new Berkeley IGS poll. But KQED politics editor Scott Schaefer says it's not all bad news for the governor. This report card on the governor's job performance is decidedly mixed, with voters split right down the middle on whether they approve or disapprove of the job he's doing. But they give Newsom especially bad grades on handling two issues, crime, where just 20 percent give him excellent or good grades, and homelessness, with only 11 percent liking the job he's doing there. Pollster Mark Camillo says it's not just Republicans who are unhappy. Some Democrats are starting to view the problems that are facing the state as problems that Uh, you know, the governor should be doing something about it and they're getting frustrated. One upside for Newsom, two-thirds of voters think the situation with the pandemic is getting better. For the California Report, I'm Scott Schaefer. UC Berkeley on Monday asked the state Supreme Court to stay a ruling that it says could cut new undergraduate enrollment for next year by as much as a third. An Alameda County Superior Court judge last week ordered the university to cap enrollment at levels seen in the 2020 to 2021 academic year. The ruling came out of a 2019 lawsuit arguing an environmental impact study is needed for enrollment increases. Officials said enrollment dropped during the pandemic and capping it will mean rejecting many students and losing nearly $60 million in tuition revenue. With California's mask mandate ending in most indoor settings after today, some health experts agree that it is the right time to ditch face coverings, but others recommend a more cautious approach. Dr. Abrar Karan is an infectious disease physician with Stanford University School of Medicine. He says his main concern is that the lifting of the mandate is coming at a time when the state is still seeing thousands of new COVID cases a day public health officials should be going off data. As somebody that worked on the Massachusetts state response in 2020, we settled where our test positivity rate was below 2% when things were relatively under control and things were, and, you know, society was generally open in Massachusetts at that time. And we didn't see a big outbreak when that incidence was around that level. I'll use that as a benchmark. Last week in California, we were still at 8% test positivity. You know, to me, we're still not there yet. Karan says the dramatic decline in cases and hospitalizations in recent weeks is a good sign, but would have preferred the state hold off a few more weeks until test positivity numbers drop even further than the 6% they're at now. When it comes to masking in schools, Dr. Karan says one of the big challenges moving forward is the stigma attached with face coverings. Especially in, in the school environment, you know, there will be a lot of social pressures. If everybody else is unmasked, a kid may feel like, why do they have to mask? Karan says for parents who are still concerned about their kids once the mask mandate is lifted, they should get them a comfortable KN95 mask to help protect them. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system on the web at chcf.org health-equity. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science, 
to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And that's the California Report for this Tuesday, February 15th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Alex Hall. Thanks for listening. If you're struggling with keeping the Internet safe for kids in your family, the National PTA has some practical tools for setting rules and making them stick. It's already been one week since Safer Internet Day, and in case you missed it, the National Parent Teachers Association is helping families have the talk with their kids to lay out ground rules for being online. Parents can still go to the website saferinternetday.us for guidance on how to facilitate a safe experience when kids use social media or gaming sites. Carrie Neal, the NPTA's PTA Connected Ambassador, says their Smart Talk tool encourages parents to give kids a say when setting family rules for technology and mobile devices. The Smart Talk tool brings that power to families to collaboratively discuss what are we comfortable with, what are the parameters and gives parents some language to work off of, and it gives kids a voice in the conversation. The tool encourages parents to explain, for example, who should be considered a stranger online and to make sure kids know not to give out personal information like their address, school, or birth date online. The site also preps local PTA groups to raise awareness in their communities. Christine Soto, a parent and teacher in Acampo, California, says families need to maintain a dialogue on this topic. There's a lot of in-app purchases or places that they ask for information. Most parents, honestly, probably don't even know who their child's friends are online. It's just so easy to talk to just random people, and the kids think it's harmless. They're just playing a game. The PTA.org slash Safer Internet site also has links to programs like Create with Kindness that encourages responsible online behavior and explains how to enable parental controls on TikTok. For California News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. In regional news, at 11.30 Friday morning, a plaque will be dedicated to commemorate the Grass Valley African Methodist Episcopal Church and School, built by the local African-American community more than 160 years ago. The Grass Valley Historical Commission and the Nevada County Historical Landmarks Commission will officially unveil the plaque in the 300 block of South Church Street, across the street from where the church was erected in 1854 and the school 11 years later. The Reverend Peter Green and formerly enslaved church trustee Isaac Sanks, along with other members of the congregation, worked to abolish slavery and secure civil rights for blacks. The AME Church was also known for its exceptional choir and accomplished musicians. It was the site for fundraising events, literary readings, and the celebration of the Emancipation Proclamation. African-American parents, whose children were denied entry into white schools, built a schoolhouse next to the church. Both the church and school were sold in 1893, and the funds returned to the AME Church. The new owners built the four Victorian homes that stand on the property today. The dedication, celebrating Black History Month, will take place on the sidewalk and lawn of 328 South Church Street. Once again, that's at 11.30 Friday morning. The public is invited to a virtual meeting at 6 Thursday evening to share the findings of a report on properties that have been contaminated by historic mining activities and to discuss plans to address revitalization of the contaminated sites. 
A so-called Brownfields assessment was conducted on 11 properties in Nevada County totaling 386 acres and close to population centers. Seven cleanup plans were prepared for 229 acres. A brownfield site is a property with the real or perceived presence of a hazardous substance, pollutant, or contaminant, which can complicate its development or reuse. Presenters at the meeting will include Grass Valley Community Development Director Tom Last, who managed the project for the Gold Country Coalition. Carrie Monahan, Program Director of the Sierra Fund, will give an overview of issues related to cleaning up and reusing abandoned mine lands. An audience question and answer session will follow. The 6 p.m. event is sponsored by the cities of Grass Valley and Nevada City, Nevada County, the Sierra Fund, and the Federal Environmental Protection Agency. Information and registration can be found at sierrafund.org. In a victory for Sierra conservationists, California's 3rd District Court of Appeal ruled in their favor in a long-running fight to rein in development in North Lake Tahoe. Monday's unanimous decision is a setback to the would-be developers of the Martis Valley West proposal near the North Star Resort. The Martis Project's landowner, Sierra Pacific Industries, sought entitlements to allow construction of a gated development with new roads, commercial malls, and 760 vacation homes on a ridgeline at the northern rim of the Tahoe Basin. According to the project's environmental review, it would have added almost 4,000 new daily car trips to Tahoe traffic. The three co-petitioners, the League to Save Lake Tahoe, Mountain Area Preservation, and Sierra Watch, had pursued a long-running legal challenge of the project, seeking to overturn Placer County's 2016 approvals. The conservation groups argued that decision-makers had failed to meet state law by downplaying or disregarding effects on the clarity of Lake Tahoe, greenhouse gas emissions, traffic, and fire safety. The court ruled that Placer County's review of the project was inadequate. Further, the court sided with the California Clean Energy Committee on separate claims that the project failed to incorporate available alternative energy sources and mitigations for added traffic. Developers of the proposed project could seek a rehearing or an appeal to the California Supreme Court. Stay tuned. And finally, Nevada County Sheriff Shannon Moon announced yesterday on Ubanet.com that she will run for re-election to a second term in June. Turning to regional weather, we're looking at continuing sunny days with high temperatures in the mid-60s through Saturday, when daytime temperatures will turn cooler for a few days. Gusty winds are forecast across much of Northern California through Wednesday. No precipitation shows up in the local forecast for the next week, except for a possibility of snow in the high country on Sunday. This morning, the UC Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Lab reported that it had measured 1.6 inches of snow overnight, ending a 37-day precipitation-free streak. This evening in Nevada City and Grass Valley, clear with a low of 42 degrees. Wednesday, sunny with a high of 64 and a low of 44. In Truckee tonight, mostly clear with a low of 14. Wednesday in Truckee, sunny with a high of 41 and a low of 13. In Sacramento this evening, clear with a low in the mid-40s. A wind advisory remains in effect until 7 tonight for portions of the Sacramento Valley, northern San Joaquin Valley, Carquina Strait, and the Delta. Wednesday in Sacramento, mostly sunny with a high of 71 and a low of 41.
Next, KVMR's Paul Emery talks to economist Gary Zimmerman to unravel the mysteries of conflicting information that's going around about jobs and the national unemployment rate. This economic report is sponsored by Rick Kelb, Wealth Management Advisor with Northwestern Mutual since 1983 on Spring Street, Nevada City at rickkelb.com. Welcome back, Gary. You know, a few days after we last spoke, the job numbers were published and jobs increased by a huge amount, close to half a million in January. Does that surprise you and and people in the financial world in general? Yeah, it was a big surprise, Paul. The January 2022 payroll employment numbers that were published by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, or, or BLS, you know, is a closely watched labor market indicator. And lots of folks were projecting that we were going to get or forecasting we were going to get about 150,000 new jobs in January. So when the number came in at 467 or close to half a million jobs, you know, most economists were very surprised. I mean, bottom line, the the January increases in jobs, and this is a survey done from surveys that go to both the private sector and government sector jobs, you know, was a huge increase. And, um, you know, and, and on top of that, the payroll job increases for both November and December were also rised up, revised significantly upwards as well. So, you know, as more complete data became available. So on average, they've, you know, the economy has added about over 500,000 jobs over the last three months. That's very good for the labor market. Okay. Now, Gary, you say this data is from a survey. And so my question is, is the BSL survey really representative about what's going on with the jobs in the economy? Paul, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics actually has two monthly surveys it uses to measure jobs, and it can compare the two to, to see you know how they're both doing. There's a large survey of establishments around 670,000 business and government agency work sites. So they kept, they collect a lot of numbers to put together. Um, and then there's a survey of about 60,000 households. Um, so these surveys are also benchmarked to actual unemployment rate or unemployment data that are collected um, all the time. So that's done to increase their accuracy. Um, so I'd say they generally provide a very good measure of trends and movements in the job market. And that's why economists closely follow these jobs data. Um, you know, but on a month-to-month data, uh, you know, month-to-month basis, they do they can bounce around a lot. Gary, so how large was the January increase, maybe compared to an average increase over the last twenty years? Well, Paul, um, the average increase uh, monthly in payroll jobs was over the period of the economic recovery, say from 2011 to 2020, was closer to 200,000 jobs, and that's far below. Uh, half a million, close to half a million. So, you know, and historically, the Bureau of Labor Statistics says they really need an increase of at least uh, 120,000 jobs before a change is in the monthly change is considered to be statistically significant. So, you know, 500,000 uh, is a lot, lot larger. So, you know, there is a lot of month to month variation in the monthly job numbers. Um, but I think they're a reliable gauge of overall trends in payroll employment. You know, you have to look at more than just one month um, because there is variability in the series. Are there any other reasons why the January jobs numbers were such a big surprise? Well, two 
reasons come to mind you know, as a, a user of this data for many years. Uh, first, you know, in terms of it's more difficult, I think, to estimate them and more difficult to seasonally adjust the data. Um, so the COVID monthly changes uh, in 2020 were so large, you know, both the 20 million lost jobs in a matter of weeks and then the large, you know, several million monthly increases uh, or a couple of several months with over a million increases uh, as the economy started recovering. So such variation makes it harder to estimate the payroll jobs and as the labor market is, is recovering for a while. And, you know, related to that are the seasonal factors that are used to adjust the data to reflect normal seasonal swings in employment, like the typical increase in temporary jobs before the holidays and the typical decline in those jobs after the holidays. Um, and with the huge monthly changes in 2020 and 2021, you know, following COVID, uh, those changes are so large, it make, probably make it much more difficult to accurately, at least for the time being, accurately get the seasonal adjustment factors right. So, you know, th there are a couple of reasons why the data may be harder to estimate and why the data may be a little bit less reliable. Sure, glad we have someone like you that can explain this stuff, especially this last question, Gary. So the increase in jobs was very large in January, and yet unemployment rate rose by a small amount. Okay, explain that. Well, thanks, Paul. That's actually an easy one. The, the unemployment rate, which is generated by the BLS's monthly survey of households, you know, also recorded a very large increase in the civilian labor force, um, you know, about one and a half million job uh, labor increase in the labor force in January. And that was enough to raise the unemployment rate from 3.9 to 4%. You know, that one-tenth of a percent increase isn't, I don't think is statistically significant in the unemployment rate. So essentially, there's little change in the unemployment rate in January. It's not a significant change. Um, but that, you know, that being said, you know, from a Fed policymaker standpoint, in, in December 2021, they were projecting that the longer run unemployment rate at full employment would be about 4%. So, you know, by this measure, you know, the economy is back to full employment and it's, you know, still adding jobs. So, you know, there's just a lot of good news there. Well, Gary, that is good news. So thank you so much. And um, I look forward to chatting with you in a couple of weeks and who knows what will be happening then. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like a deal, Paul. Thank you. Thank you very much. Gary Zimmerman is a retired senior economist for the San Francisco Reserve in San Francisco and currently is a visiting professor at the Vienna University of Economics and Business in Austria, where he teaches courses in economics and finance. That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30, it's another all-new edition of Educationally Speaking. Join host Scott W. Lay and Kimberly Ewing for an uplifting conversation with educators Tina Corker and Carrie Ferrero about the upcoming virtual STEAM science and arts competition. At 7, it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Then at 8, it's back to the eclectic music you love with The Other Side, hosted by Tanali. And at 10, Rock Outside the Box with Rue Cantata. This is Joyce Miller wishing you a safe Tuesday evening. 
Join us Wednesday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News. Thank you.